Should we just pray as we come and look at God's word together? Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can come and worship you. And we thank you, Lord, that despite our well-being a mess, Father, we know that we stand on the rock, the rock of ages, Lord. The King of kings is with us, for us, not against us. Uh, Lord, no matter what happens, we know that you do have a plan. We do have a kingdom that's coming. Uh, And Lord, it may seem a a strange thing to say to a world that feels so fragile. Yet, Lord, it's the only thing that's going to make people feel hopeful and confident. Uh, And Lord, anything other than despair and terror that is currently flooding um, a lot of Europe. But Lord, we don't just remember Europe, Lord, um, in church this morning. We want to remember the whole of our world, Father. We know that Africa suffers with lots of um, groups, Lord, we think of all that Boko Haram do and places, people like that. We know that in South America there are some truly terrible groups doing awful things, places like Mexico, and we know, Lord, North America's got its problem. Remember Syria and Iraq, Lord, and other places like that, Father. We don't want to just be woken up to the worries of the world because it's now on our doorstep, Father. Forgive us if that has been our hearts. We want to have a heart, Lord, that breaks through your whole world um, because, Lord, everybody is made in your image, uh, regardless of where they're from. So, Father God, may we have a truly global perspective. Lord, in our prayers, and um, Lord, in this time forward, we pray. Just bless us now as we look at your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been thinking about the kingdom of God uh, for the last few weeks. Um, We've covered uh, a few things, I guess. Um, Like all these things, there's uh, quite a a bit more we could have said, um, but then again, we haven't got all the time in the world. Um, I think it's Martin Lloyd-Jones did... A 10-year sermon on the book of Hebrews, I think it was, or, or something ridiculous like that, almost a, a verse of sermon. So if you want, um, I'll give that a stab. Um, no? All right. Okay. I thought it would be quite interesting. Um, you can ask questions at the end, couldn't you, see who remembers <laughs> 10 years ago. Um, but we've covered it. There's so much more we, we can say, and, and I hope that it inspires you to go away and think about this concept of God's kingdom, because it really is vital um, to being a Christian, to understand the coming kingdom of God. Um, this kingdom of God is not a place that you can travel to. Um, when people talk about the kingdom of God, you can't jump on an aeroplane and go, I'm going to go to the kingdom of God now for a weekend. It's not, it's not got a border. It's not got a, a border guard in front of it. Uh, the kingdom of God is a, simply a term that means all those people that confess Christ as their saviour, those people that know Jesus as their king of kings. And that's where the kingdom of God is in their hearts, in their lives. We are in a sense, the kingdom of God. We're the bricks, the Bible says, of God's house. God is building his kingdom, building his house. And we, as his people, are the very stones in that building. And actually, if that doesn't blow you away, um, well, there's something wrong, actually. I shouldn't say things like that from the front, because I'd probably offend you, but I don't mean to. But if that doesn't blow your mind, that you are the bricks in God's temple, then either I'm not explaining it very well or you don't get it or or you're not hearing it very well. Because that doesn't blow your mind that you are the bricks in the perfect temple of God. That's something seriously wrong in all of us, I guess. Um, But God's kingdom is coming physically. We spoke of that earlier on. The king of kings is bringing his kingdom to earth. He's going to remake everything. Everything old is going to be made new. Everything bad and evil is going. It's going to get lost. God's going to renew everything. And those that have put their trust in Jesus this side of death will know perfection and eternity in that place that Pat read for us from Revelation 21. But until then, the rule of God, the kingdom of God is the rule of God in our lives. And that means that the kingdom of God is global. Um, And it's brilliant. We currently live in the most unusual time where all the world's uh, empires seem to be collapsing around our ears. Political parties, the EU, the UN, all things seem to be so fragile. Three weeks, four weeks ago, who'd have thought? But now here we are, everything is so fragile. And actually, I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. 
Because it reminds us that we don't trust in men. We don't trust in women. We trust in God. And God's kingdom is global. That means that God's kingdom currently resides in the midst of ISIS territory. It currently resides in the midst of Nice and Munich and London and Paris and South America and everywhere. Because wherever there is a Christian and a church, God's kingdom is there. And that is good news for our world. Because the world is full with examples of history of where Christians have stood up for justice and peace and righteousness and made a difference. And so thank God that his kingdom is global. Thank God that his church is even in the most horrendous of places. And it's a humbling thought, isn't it, to think that we as Christians take God's rule into our families, our workplaces, our friendship groups, that we have the privilege of bringing God's kingdom ways into some real dark places. And I want to tell you a story, a story that I came across by chance. I was talking to my neighbour, Simon the Butcher, um, don't misunderstand his profession. He doesn't go around sort of hurting people. He's genuinely a butcher. Um, the, the Simon the Butcher, uh, the Butcher of Sorbetsworth, I call him. No, he's the, uh, the butcher of the uh, top of Bell Street. And he uh, lives down my road. And we just happened to be chatting because he was on his bike, or about to go out on his bike. And we got talking. And he knows I'm the minister of this church, as most people do. And he said, oh, Have you ever heard of the Reverend Bill Shergold? There's a picture um, in a minute. Um, and I said, No, never. And he said, Oh, he's a brilliant bloke. He started the 59 Club. Ever heard of the 59 Club? Oh, some of you have. There's also, I think, there's one that happened 10 years later as well. Now, Reverend Bill Shergold, um, who died relatively recently at the grand old age of 89, um, got to start this thing called the 59 Club in the late 50s, early 60s, uh, presumably in 1959. um, And he was known as the Biker Priest. And, uh, And what basically, in a nutshell, I won't ramble on too long, but what happened was he became the vicar of St. Mary's in Eton, and there was a, a youth club called the 59 Club. And, uh, and he liked it, it was a very nice youth club, but in his own words, he wanted to break away from all those fuddy-duddy youth clubs. And he wanted to attract the disaffected youth, many of whom were rockers, who were the, sorry, rockers were the most high-profile example... Uh, Sorry, I'll start again. Let me read that again. I'll actually read it rather than guessing what I'm looking at. Um, And attract the disaffected youth of whom the rockers were one of the most high-profile examples. So Reverend Bill Shergold had a great youth club at his church and could have just stayed and helped, I guess. But he thought, I want to do something that reaches to the one group of kids and young people that no one likes, So everyone's frightened of, that aren't allowed in cafes and bowling alleys and cinemas. And I want to reach them, the rockers, on their motorbikes. And so he tells a story. There's one cafe on the North Circular, the Ace Cafe, where many of the bikers congregated to drink coffee and listen to the jukebox. And one day in 1962, Shergold rode, rode there in his triumph, dressed in his leathers and with his dog collar disguised beneath a scarf. He said, I was convinced that I was at least going to lose my trousers or have my bike heaved into the canal. He summed up the courage, handed out church leaflets in the cafe and invited the bikers to come to Eton Mission on Saturday night. So that was the beginning of the biking section of the 59 Club, which soon had more than 4,000 members who came from as far afield as Oxford and Kent. The attractions at the church hall included a jukebox, espresso machine and table tennis. Our things never change, eh? <laughs> Isn't it funny how, whatever you what did you do? We just got a table to this table, like, you know, oh, brilliant. It just shows that when God is for you, 
who can be against you? What great things you can do in the power of the Holy Spirit with a jukebox and a coffee machine. Um, brilliant. But when he got them, uh, he t- quickly was known by his new flock as Father Bill or Fav. Um, he held services for the bikers where he spoke from the pulpit. He compared, to them, he compared them as knights of old, encouraging them to have uh, such ideals as courage, courtesy, and chivalry. He addressed them from the pulpit. He blessed their bikes that were parked neatly in the aisles. I assume that's in the aisles of the church. Can you imagine the furore uh, if we had a load of young people in their motorbikes coming to this church on a Friday night and line up their motorbikes? I hope there wouldn't be a furore because what a great thing to do, an amazing thing to do. Get them in and preach the gospel and love them. All these years later, there are now 30,000 members of the 59 Club. And I think that is one of the best stories I've heard in the last few weeks. That could be any one of us. You haven't got to be a vicar with a dog collar and leathers. Um, That may not be your thing at all. But that can be any one of us. And the king has already told his people to go. I remember hearing a talk by Bill Costa. Uh, no relation to Costa Coffee. Um, he's a banker, works for HTB. And I remember him talk, giving a talk about going out and changing the world. And he said, most Christians spend years going, Lord, shall I go and do this? Do you want me to go and do it? And God's saying, I've told you in Matthew 28, go. I've already given the authority. Just go. Do it. And it really inspires me personally because this kingdom of God is coming. And it makes a difference. I want to start a youth mentoring network in Sawbridgeworth for people of that age group. If you want to be involved, come and see me. We want to run something called Make Lunch in term times, giving kids who don't get fed during school holidays something to eat. Come and see me. Get involved. It's how we reach people for the kingdom of God and with the message of Jesus. So let me ask you two questions before we really get into this. Number one, do you belong to God's kingdom at all? Remember we said last week that God's kingdom is going to outlast all the other kingdoms on earth. That in fact God's kingdom is going to smash ungodly kingdoms to pieces. That his kingdom is eternal and powerful. Do you belong to it? Do you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior? He is coming back. And he's coming back soon. And you ought not to leave it too late to ask him to be your Savior. And also, let me tell you, if you don't know Jesus, knowing him as your king and savior is the best thing, hands down, best thing you could ever do with your life. I became a Christian at 11 years old, and whilst it's not always been the easiest, having got the top job at a bank where I'm earning squillions of pounds, having got a Porsche, believe it or not, who cares? I'm the happiest I could ever possibly be. I know who I am, where I'm going, where I'm from, who loves me, who died for me, and nothing you can sling my way will take away my hope, not even death itself belonging to the kingdom of god is truly awesome second question is for christians in this building this morning do we act like we belong to the kingdom of our god when you announce to your friends actually i'm a christian do they do this really i had no idea it's not good is it are your characteristics and my characteristics the behaviors that reflect the ethics of god's coming kingdom or our current world? Do you actually talk to your friends and family, preach the gospel of Christ crucified for the sin of the world, that he rose again and that he's going to return soon, or not? So let's carry on with our series this morning. Um, Because grasping this kingdom of God um, is really vital for spirituality of Christians and the health of the local church. And it's clearly a very important topic. Something very strange happened this week. Um, I was talking to Andrea. That's not the strange thing that happened. (laughs) And decided to talk to each other. So, 
Tuesday afternoons is a chat, chat to the wife day. Um, Andrea has chat to the husband day on Wednesday, so it doesn't quite, uh, doesn't quite work. Um, but she was talking to a friend of hers at work who's a Christian. And, uh, and Andrea happened to bring up in conversation, oh, we're looking at the kingdom of God on Sunday mornings. Her friend Rachel said, oh, it's so weird. I don't know if she used that exact phrase. My church is looking at the kingdom of God. Whoa. And she said, what makes it even more strange is I know of at least another church that are currently looking at the kingdom of God on a Sunday morning. Then she said something very dramatic, which I like. She said, the Lord is on the move. Brilliant. I love things like that. And I want to say amen, because God is always on the move. God is always doing something. We think he's not, but that's not because he's not. It's because we're not thinking he is, and we're not paying attention. But I believe God is preparing and challenging his people. He wants us to lift our eyes up to his coming kingdom, as Daphne quoted from Psalm 121, because there are tough days coming. Our days aren't getting easier in this world. And I believe God is particularly calling us as his church to be ready to stand for our faith, but not just to stand for our faith, for ourselves, to stand against injustice, to stand up against oppression in our world, to be lights in a world that is growing increasingly dark, and to bring the kingdom of God so that people will know their saviour has already died for them, already risen from the grave, and just asks them to be his. And so I want to quickly focus just on that, not the kingdom this, this afternoon, oh, this afternoon, this morning, but the king of that kingdom. Because every kingdom reflects its king, and the kingdom of God is no different. Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. And there's two passages I want to quickly read and just think about. And, uh, and they say, have very different messages about this Jesus, this king of God's kingdom. Revelation chapter 1 verses 12 to 19 we read it last week during our time of worship and john has a vision it's a vision it's a language of vision rather than sort of describing what he's actually seeing is descriptive an analogy of jesus it says i turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me and when i turned i saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet And with a golden sash around his chest, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. The king of the kingdom that we follow is a king of power and majesty. And that was our message last week. And this image, this vision that John has is an image, an analogy of that power and that holiness and that majesty. His voice, his vision, his eyes, his feet, everything just says that this Jesus is powerful. I haven't got time to go through it, but if you want to know more, chat to me afterwards. And we see that power of Jesus in his earthly life when he died and when he rose again, defeating death. And it's really important for us as Christians to have that image of Jesus as our powerful, mighty king. We must remember that our king is powerful and that he does what he wants. He accomplishes all of his purposes, even if it might not feel like he's accomplishing his purposes. And we too have to live as people who are powerful. 
Believing that in the name of Jesus, even the demons will flee. We should be people expecting mountains to move, who are prepared to step into darkness and proclaim the freedom of Jesus Christ over sin and death and expecting it to be overcome. Let me tell you a story. Um, If you've done Alpha, you can do something else for the next five minutes because you've heard it already. Um, It's one of my favorite stories, um, actually. It's a story of a woman called Doreen Irvin. If you've ever read the book, Witchcraft to Christ, um, I don't know if any of you have. If you haven't, you really should. It's a brilliant book. This young girl, Doreen, runs away from home and uh, she gets involved with drugs and everything. She ends up getting into prostitution and makes a complete mess of her life. She ends up, um, I forget where she moves to, somewhere in London, Um, it's at the end of the Piccadilly line Um, and she lives there and she just falls into the occult she gets into all sorts of terrible things and she ends up getting heavily involved in witchcraft which is all bad by the way Uh, we're told aren't we that um, there are good witches and bad witches white witches are alright but the other ones aren't so good it's all bad whether it be Charlie Charlie or Ouija board it's all bad it's all dodgy tarot cards all dodgy And so she gets involved in this and the devil just grabs hold of her and just drags her into the pit of hell. And she becomes uh, this witch. There's no way of putting it. She gets heavily involved and she does things and she sees things that no one should ever see. And she gets involved with cursing people and things happen. She curses people and things actually happen. It's quite frightening stuff. You see, we have a very sanitized view of evil and spiritual powers in the West, don't we? That sort of thing doesn't happen anymore. Yes, it does. We just don't look at it. But it happens. And so she saw these things, but the turning point in her life before she became a Christian was she was on the moors, I think it was, and there were a group of them in a massive circle, and they were chanting and cursing. And out walks a vicar. Um, We're very Anglican this this morning, aren't we? There's two vicar stories I've told. Um, I hope maybe God's telling me something. Um, And so he walks. It's quite a misty evening. He's got no idea that these sort of coven of witches are there cursing and doing all these terrible things. And it's just sort of his evening stroll. I assume that's how vicars walk with their hands behind their back. And he sort of walks gently and slowly. And, uh, and as he gets towards this group of people, they see him and they begin to curse. And don't forget, this, this stuff had done something to people, it hurt people. But he walks in one side, completely oblivious, and walks out the other. And Doreen Irving, for the first time in years, realized that she had come face to face with a power more stronger than that of the devil. That was the beginning of the end of her experience of witchcraft. She ends up being completely um, delivered from demon after demon after demon inside of her. But that's the king that I follow. Is that the king that you believe in as a Christian? Is that the kingdom you believe in, a kingdom of power and might? But it's not that I want to focus on because we said a lot of that last week. I want to read to you um, the second passage that I really want to focus on this morning and it's John chapter 13 verses 1 to 20 and I'm going to read it all even though it's a bit long um, but I figure it doesn't matter it is the Bible we're at church um, so if you've got it open John chapter 13 verses 1 to 20 it says it was just before the feast Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the father having loved his own who were in the world he now showed them the full extent of his love The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. 
After that, he poured water in a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus said, you do not now realize what I am doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you've got no part with me. Remember our illustration with Jack and Jane earlier on. Then, Lord, Simon Peter said, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. The whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that, you, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now you know these things, you will be blessed. I'll stop there, actually. I reckon that this is about the most controversial thing Jesus did on his time on earth. He's this popular, famous, traveling rabbi that people are following. He's well-known. He's got this status. But just like Jesus normally does, he's very quick to mess with the status quo. He takes off his outer top and he wraps a, a thing around his, a towel around his waist. He looks like a servant. That's how servants dressed. He completely humbles, humiliates himself. How embarrassing you can imagine they're thinking. How humiliating. Why are you doing that? You're Jesus. I wonder this, this morning... How prepared are you or I to be humiliated for Jesus Christ? How prepared would you be for people to go, what earth are you doing? How embarrassing. A grip. Would you be embarrassed and humiliated for Jesus? I heard a story once, I think it took place in Iraq, during amongst all the trouble, and there was an Iraqi doctor, a woman, and uh, she was like the top doctor in a hospital over there. And uh, they discovered that she was a Christian. And she was told very quickly renounce Christianity or you can't be the top doctor in this hospital she said no and guess what they demoted her to toilet cleaner and how does she approach being a toilet cleaner when she was once the top doctor in this hospital I'll tell you what she did she did it with joy she cleaned those toilets for Jesus Christ with all of her might She understood what James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4 says when James writes very, very clearly to God's people. Hang on. James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. She also would have understood Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, where we read these familiar words. Your attitude should be like that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Peter, when Jesus comes to wash his feet, is horrified. No way. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you've got no part with me. But then he says in verses 14 to 17 that this is the example. If I've done this, this is how you are to behave. If this is how I act, this is how you're supposed to act. And it's almost in direct complement and contrast to what I read from Revelation 1. Our powerful king is mighty and majestic, but his power is expressed through sacrifice and service to other people. Therefore, the kingdom of God, which is coming, and those who follow this king ought to match his example of sacrifice and service. In fact, if you want to change the world, you must serve the world. You must serve it and love it. If you want to change a group of people, you don't tell them how bad they are and try and push them over there. You love them. You get on your motorbike thinking you might have your head kicked in and you invite them in and you love them until you love the hell out of them, as somebody once said. Service and sacrifice are often our weapons against darkness, as well as prayer, obviously, and the gospel. But when we serve out of worship to the King of Kings, filled with the Holy Spirit, because we want to share the gospel with our lives and our words, we make a genuine difference. And so how can we serve our world? How do we serve as God's kingdom comes? Well, a few highlights from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We need to be peacemakers, you know, when you're at work this week and someone's got the hump of someone else, is your first reaction to go, yeah, didn't they get on your nerves? Can't stand her. Or do you say, just chill? Why don't you just get together and chat? And when someone offends you, do you show reconciliation and forgiveness? Or does the chip just get deeper every time you look at their annoying face and you think, oh, I can't stand you? What about going the extra mile? When someone asks for help, do you cheerfully do a bit? And then when they say, well, can you help again? Is your first reaction, ask oh, someone else, I'm busy. Or would you go the extra mile? I'll tell you what, people get a lot more of a witness of your faith when you go back and help again than the first time you helped. Do you give to those who ask? When we pass someone that's in need, not just money, but of our time, of our expertise, of our support, do we give without worry of what it might cost. Do we love our neighbour? And let me be controversial. I don't mean our neighbour. I mean, do you know the people that you live next door to? If I asked you on the spot to name the, the sort of two either side of you and the three across the road or four across the road from you, could you do it? Have you never said two words to your actual neighbours? That's not good. Do we love our enemies? If we're going to serve the king of kings, we have to love our enemies. There is no getting around that. Do we do to others as we would have them do to us or do we want everyone to do to us what we'd have us do to ourselves and not them? Do we judge other people? We're told not to very clearly. Are we prepared to put our reputations, our status, our priorities, are we prepared to kneel in front of the needy and wash the most dirtiest of feet that we might be presented with? Or maybe you might say to me, that's not really me. That's not my thing. I've got a lot on. You know, it's difficult at work. I've got the kids to think about. You know, I'm spending a little time with me at the moment. Sorting out me rather than other people. Well, let me just finish with two reminders for you this morning and for myself. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. I feel like I've said it a thousand times these last few weeks. Peter writes, as you come to him, as Jesus 
the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're already a brick in his temple. The question is, what kind of brick? What use can God have for you? And the second reminder is 2 Timothy, and this is far more serious. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. Timothy writes these, Paul writes these words, And the Lord's servant, as in any Christian, must not quarrel, instead must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. And the reason I read that is that often in the New Testament, Christians are referred to as servants of God, that we're servants of Jesus Christ. And uh, and it's really interesting because if you've ever looked at the word servant in the New Testament, you'll notice that there's almost always a footnote at the bottom of the page. And it just simply says, bond servant. Have you noticed that? Is it just me? No, it's just me then. You can have a look and test it if you want. But it often says, because in Greek the word servant is almost always bond servant. And the Greek word for bond servant means this, one who is subservient to and entirely at a disposal of his or her master. In the first century, if you are a bond servant to another human being, that was a permanent position, that you were considered their property, at their disposal you had no rights of your own. What a strange word to call a Christian. Why would you refer to a Christian as such a negative thing? Surely it's negative. But the Bible is clear that we were purchased, we were bought when we became Christians. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. We were once slaves to our sinful nature, but now we are free from the works of sin and death. But we're not free to be our own. We stopped being a slave to the sin and death of this world and we began to be slaves of the King of Kings. We are his bond servants. We serve him and his kingdom. And that simply means that everything that's been said about God's kingdom, its ethics, we as Christians are obliged to do. Not when we want to or it suits us or it works, regardless of where we feel. We have no option but to forgive. We have no option but go the extra mile. We have no option but give to those who asked. Because you were bought by the King of Kings to serve in his kingdom. And so as we go off for the summer, think about that. Think about our world. Think about our families. Think about our town. Think about our youth. Think about our places of work. Think about how they're often a mess. And think about how you and I are the bricks in God's temple. But not just bricks, obligated, called, commanded to live differently to act radically, to stand for God's light, even when you don't feel full of faith, even when it's not convenient, always. Because, let me end with this, we are the hope of this world. We are the kingdom of God. We are the fragrance of life and death to people. We are the signposts to heaven. We are a city on a hill. We are the ones who damn the world when we do nothing And the ones who present salvation when we obey the king. Think about Bill Shergold. 
I don't know, I've never been to Eton, but I imagine it's nice. He could have just eked his Christianity out in a nice little church, having a nice time, and died. And everyone would have gone, he was a nice chap. Or he could have given his life to make a difference in a dark world so that when he dies and faces the king of kings, that king will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. This is not meant to be a having a go at kind of sermon. But I never know what else to say, frankly, because we only have the one life before we meet Jesus. And I don't know about you, I'm obsessed with the fear that I won't have lived it correctly for my saviour. Because I'm going to stand before him one day. And what am I going to say to him? Well, Lord, I was tired a lot of the time. Lord, I had a busy schedule. Lord, if only I'd have had a nicer house or a smaller house or a different kind of family or whatever. And he'll say to me, I died on the cross. I gave everything up for you. Something to think about. God's kingdom is coming. His will will be done. What part will you play in it? Should we pray? Father God, we thank you that you are the King of Kings. And that, Lord, you invite us, you call us to take a part, Lord, in your coming kingdom. And, Lord, it is an amazing privilege. Lord, what else can we say except be challenged by that? And, and Lord, I am challenged by it. I know many of us are in this room, Father God, wondering what would you have us do next or better. Lord, desperate for your spirit to refresh us and renew us. And, Father God, I just pray that you would remind us that we are servants, that, Lord, we're called as your children, but also as your property. You bought us, Lord. You bought us, Lord, not to lord it over us in a terrible way, but as a father and as a king. Lord, as one of power and might, but one who gave his life on the cross, whose son died for us as an example, Lord. And we are as servants of the king, meant to emulate the work and life and death of Jesus Christ as we live and die and rise again because of him. Father God, this, this summer... Lord, the rest of our lives, may we be consumed with that idea that we are servants of the King of Kings and not be holy when it suits us, but obey you, Lord, in all things at all times. And Lord, for those here this morning that don't know you, Father God, um, maybe this is all just a, a strange concept, but Father God, your kingdom is coming. Lord, there's a choice to be made. There is a saviour to be known. And Lord, it is the best decision that we could ever make. And I pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to end with... Two songs. Um, what I ask you to do, um, I've got some bricks. Um, I'm going to ask you to move um, during the last two songs, um, which I know is not the sort of thing we do on a Sunday morning, move too much. Um, but I'm going to spread these out up here. And just as almost a, I don't know, an acknowledgement of what we've been thinking about, that idea that I want to play my part for God's kingdom. You know, I, want to, I want to be a brick that God's pleased to have in his wall. Um, these are just beyond there, just a picture of a brick wall. Just come and get one. Almost as a response, as you're coming up, just say in your mind or out loud, whatever, Lord, use me in your temple. Make that your prayer as you walk up. Get one of these, stick it on the fridge or, or next to your computer, or if you, if you um, have a, a phone, maybe stick it on the back of your phone so at least it has it, has it on you 24 hours a day. Um, and every time you look at it, just say, Lord, make me a brick that you can use. Make me a brick that you can use in your temple. And let's make a difference in our world because Lord knows it needs it. So if you can't get up the front and you want one, somebody else, I'm sure if you ask them nicely, will come and grab one for you. But just come and get one and by way of response. And then, uh, so we're going to sing as we walk around.